Hello, listeners, and welcome to Smart Loving Conversations. I'm Francine Parola, and I'm delighted to share with you this conversation I recorded with my colleague, Sean Vanderlinden, earlier today. Sean is a Master Mentor and International Programs Consultant with Catholic Psych Institute. He's also the founder and managing director of Altum Consulting and Counselling based in Canberra. Sean has quite a diverse background, which includes carpentry, a period of formation for consecrated life, marriage and family. And he's held a number of roles in mental health and includes among them clinical counselling, evangelisation, leadership and advocacy. He has been an advisor to Smart Loving, for which we are deeply grateful. Our Smart Loving conversation today is titled Beyond Feelings. The world of feelings and emotions is vitally important to our life and our relationships. But what does current research and best practice tell us about how to understand them and orientate them for the best outcomes in our relationships? I found the conversation totally fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. Hi there, listeners. I'm really delighted to be here today with my colleague and good friend, Sean van der Linden. Sean, welcome. It's great to have you with us. How's things going for you lately? Have you got a God moment we'd like to share with our listeners a little bit of where we are Thanks. in our faith yeah. life before we get into the topic? So welcome and, and fill us in. How's it going? Yeah. Yeah, doing really well. Thanks, Francine. It's great to be here and really happy to be dialoguing here and, and with those who are listening. It's that post-Christmas time, I think, where we're recovering from all the festive season. Our house flooded yesterday, so that's our big news. <laughs> oh, my had, goodness. Um, summer storm came true and we thought we were fine, but there was such a volume of rain and then we wandered downstairs and the rumpus room had an inch of water. So... Uh, yeah, the water table is so high that it just came up through the foundation. Quite amazing. Anyway, so that's our fun little moment. But um, I'm guessing your office is not in your basement, so you're not your feet aren't in not. a puddle at the moment. Okay. No, all good. Just drying out carpets in the uh, in the garage. Yeah. So oh, I hope um, there's but too no, much doing really well. Okay. So it's been a busy time of year, but feeling very blessed. I think for me, the big blessing at the moment in my life is just the work I'm doing with the Catholic Psych Institute. As uh, we were talking about before we came on air, it's been a busy January because most of the work and the clients are all from the United States and things are busy over there. They don't have summer holidays in their winter. <laughs> so, but it's very rewarding work and it's a great privilege to mm. be working for them. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about that and the insights that you'll be able to bring to our conversation. For me, I'm just really filled with a great sense of gratitude. Yesterday we met with our sons who, who announced his engagement to his longtime girlfriend a couple of months ago. And we met with uh, his family and, uh, sorry, her family and, and her grandparents. And they are the most beautiful, just loving, gentle family. They don't have a, as, I guess, the strongest faith kind of background like we do, which has been really important to us. But you can just see that there is this just beautiful integrity and lovingness and, and it's helping me understand Chloe's personality a little bit better as well. And so I just was texting with the mum, texting with what to say thanks. I just said, I'm just, we're just so filled with joy that he's marrying into a family where there's just such um, love and, and that model of marriage that's been so rich in their, in their different generations. So that was um, a really just a oh, lovely guessing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's always a little bit of a question, isn't it, when... Uh, your children are dating somebody and it's like, well, I'm getting to know that person, but often those deeper issues associated with their family of origin. As parents, so I'm standing there, so we won't see that for yeah. years and years um, yeah. until we start to get to know the family a bit more. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Yeah. So we might jump into our topic then, if you don't mind. Uh, we're, we're calling it Listeners Beyond Feelings because I want to unpack with Sean some of the, I guess, the the models around emotions and feelings and the difference between those, and uh, particularly because in my, um, I guess, formation, I grew up in households that were immersed in worldwide marriage encounter. And for those of you who don't know, there was a movement founded through and driven worldwide through the Catholic Church. There was also um, a Christian versions of it as well. It sort of kick-started in the 60s and 70s, and it just exploded. And it had a particular, it grew out of the um, some of the counselling methodology that was happening at that time, and then was being adapted for use for couples. And a key thing that they brought to that insight in those weekend retreats was an understanding of the importance of feelings 
and how husbands and wives could learn how to respond really positively in terms of accepting their feelings and sharing them with each other. And my parents, I remember when they did the weekend, it was revolutionary for them. So some of the kind of, if you like, the slogans or the catchphrases that we grew up with were things like, you know, definition, a feeling is a spontaneous internal reaction to a situation, personal place. Feelings are neither right nor wrong. They have no moral value and how we act on them does have moral value. Or there are no positive or negative feelings. They're just the weather inside you. So Sean, can you talk to me about feelings and emotions, perhaps starting with how are they different? Are they the same thing? Or if not, how are they different? What's the contemporary thinking on this topic? These kind of ideas have been really beneficial to million, literally millions of couples throughout the world. But are there some shortcomings or some limitations to them? Is there something more that we perhaps not been captured in those, that kind of thinking? Over to you. Yeah. Gosh, where do we begin? That's a huge topic. I mean, I think all of that is um, obviously they were onto something, weren't they? As you say, marriage encounter exploded and um, I have memories of my parents doing it and uh, writing letters to each other in the weeks after they'd been on a re- weekend retreat. And of course, yeah. they had the marriage encounter sticker on the back of the car everywhere. Yes. Which you could tell, yes. pick the Catholics out. Um, they, they wore it loud and proud on their uh, on their cars. Um, so something really special, but yeah, feelings. So, so nothing, those sort of catchphrases that you mentioned, they, they're all true, aren't they? Like they they speak to something really profound. I think in my work that I've done in the whole conflict resolution kind of space. So I've done mediation and then was was the CEO of Conflict Resolution Service for some time, which was a, a community organization dedicated to resolving conflict and disputes and but had very much the whole restorative practice kind of area open up. Uh, restorative justice, restorative practice. So that whole movement's really focused on what is happening in conflict. And obviously that's a lot to do with our emotions. That's a lot to do with the whole system we have internally that helps us get through life and survive and Mm -hmm. so i think there can be a bit of a there's different ways to look at this of course but i I found some of the definitions out of the whole restorative practice movement as that movement brought people together in conflict situations and tried to come up with ways of restoring relationship ways that were were more long-lasting and focused on rather than punishing and things had gone wrong people receiving punishment or a punitive response um, to find a restorative response. They realized things were working. They they would bring people together and something would happen in the room. They asked that a series of questions they would follow as they worked through a conflict. But then as they looked into it, they, they really gained an idea of the emotional system that we have and a bit of more of a nuanced way of understanding that. And so this is where you look at sort of our physiology and then our psychology, and then kind of and our emotions. So I'm not sure if I can dive into that a bit more. Please, yes, yes, so please do. I think the thing that is often missing when we we just say feelings, feelings, we we can get into this lack of awareness of just how much our body is involved, and mm-hmm. what our our body and our the body and mind connection. And so there's this idea of affects. So affects with an A now. Uh, it's a bit obscure, but it's really helpful just to step back and say, well, what is, how do we understand affects? So it's um, affect theory, I mean, is what we're talking about here. So this gets into sort of a bit of more of an evolutionary psychology. Um, mm-hmm. So that we're born with this powerful propensity to want to survive. And these there's nine affects that were identified. So psychologist Sylvan Tompkins was one of the main people behind this theory. But he identified nine affects and they're innate. So they're built into our hardware. They're built into our biology. And they kick in um, immediately and help us to make sense of what's going on in the world, to survive, to kind of they move us to cry or connect or to learn. And yeah, so each one has its own unique experiential kind of signature if you like and because as human beings we're, we're receiving so much mm. input all the time it's sent it's, we walk into a room there's people in the room where there's data coming in and we can't possibly um process it all you know it's something right. we learn sort of have an automatic way of doing it mm-hmm. so this is where the affects i'll go through the nine of them but there's um distress and anguish so this is like the cry for help there's interest and excitement. It's, this is the pull towards sort of mastery. So that kind of 
oh, that's interesting. You know, that curiosity that human beings naturally have. There's enjoyment and joy, very much that sort of social bond that, that comes in the enjoyment and joy. Surprise, so they're the first three positive affects. And then there's a neutral affect, which is surprise and startle, which is sort of like when we get a shock and it just happens. Right. Um, and it could be a good surprise, like, happy birthday. <laughs> or it could be a bad surprise, like, oh my gosh, yeah. snake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's generally fairly neutral. It's just like, mm. boom, like... You know, something, the tree fell down in front of us and we, we have a shock. Then there's a series of negative affects. Um, so anger, rage, fear, and terror is another one. Then there's shame, humiliation. So a real powerful self-protection signal. There's disgust, which is the need to expel. So this is a, where we eat something that's off and we, and people sometimes wear that that disgust on their face that <laughs> they have a permanent the resting bitch face thing <laughs> yes yeah that's right and then there's dismell which is an avoidance so it's like this expression of the face that comes when something's off we smell something food that's off so the main point about and we won't go into all of them now but the main point is to say that these are innate biological responses to a sort of an increasing or a decreasing or a persistent intensity of a neural firing. So the brain is sensing something and then there's a biological response. So this results in a particular feeling or a facial or bodily display or skin change. So we actually happens in a, in our body. Uh, so when, and it's automatic, so it happens. So often in conflict, mm. which is part of what's happening, we're actually experiencing an effect and we don't even realize that's happened, but it's happened it happens without us. It's a, it's a, because these are survival mechanisms, and our body immediately has a has a reaction. Mm. So it's not um, so, even passing through the higher order thinking. It's I mean we might that comes later, doesn't it? The awareness comes, later. comes in, yeah. That we can yeah. then try to interpret and put in context and perhaps moderate how I, we would respond. But you're saying that there's the exposure to this stimulus that is then this spontaneous response that's so automatic it's because it's linked to our biological survival yeah 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 so when when we then become aware of an affect we can call that a feeling right right so, so that the awareness changes it from an affect to well not to change it but the awareness yeah. is the feeling dimension of it okay yeah yeah so um then when, when things become much more powerful or significant is when we have a feeling and then when we connect that to memory so mm -hmm. that's that's when we start talking about we have an emotion so it's right. like affect feeling emotion that's the sort mm -hmm. of the sequence yeah so often and each one of yeah. those has i guess an increasing um Got enough cognitive is the right word, but there is an increasing, um, a, a more a fuller awareness of an integration with other aspects of our humanhood, her personhood. Yeah, is that correct, yeah, or do you yeah. want to? Well, I think there's uh, often it's often happens out of our awareness that we we sort of develop rules or scripts for how uh, to get more positive mm -hmm. and less negative affect. Okay. So we, 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 we want to, we, we want, we want more positive. We want the, um, you know, the interest and excitement and the enjoyment. We want those sort of positive affects. Um, and we develop rules and ways of, um, so these, these patterns that we develop or scripts, uh, to manage affect, they then start to form our personality. Um, as we start talking about personality, how we've come to be. I mean, a computer metaphor is helpful, maybe. For, for yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so the whole hardware, firmware, and software. So the, the affect is like the hardware. So it's like the keyboard, um, the, the yeah. monitor on the screen, you know, the actual physical kind of thing. And then the, the firmware is what is needed to make the hardware work. It's It's what allows the mouse to work. And sometimes we have to update the firmware, but it's... It's mm. still still within the computer. It's within you know, it's within the machine, and and it's it's proper to the machine. So um, and then 
then you've got the software, which is sort of like it could be different for everyone. Um, the software could be a different application. Um, okay. So this is where... So that's know, the equivalent of the emotion. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So affects are our biology, feelings are our psychology, and emotions are our biography. It's our mm -hmm. story. It's sort of it's the way to sort of think about it. So that's just a bit of the journey down affect theory anyway. But I, I find it quite helpful because it, working with people and working with couples when they're in conflict, just knowing that a lot of this stuff is innate, it's it's how God made us, it's it's built into our, the very, uh, our humanity. Uh, and so things like shame or, you know, and anger and rage, they're there for a reason. They're there for a survival, it's part of our survival mm -hmm. mechanism. And so often with some of those more profound affect experiences, we don't often think of them as neutral. You know, we often, uh, it's hard to think of them as neutral. But we think of them, well, I've got arms and legs and I have affect. Aff yeah. Yes. Um, it's, okay. it's there for a reason. So why do we experience it? It's there for, mm -hmm. to draw our attention to something. Yeah. And I'm just hmm. thinking, linking back to my earlier comment about just uh, meeting our son's fiance's family, the comments about sort of family of origin, that's coming in, that sort of idea is really coming in on the, the emotion, like the biography aspect of it, isn't it? Like the hmm. that each of us has learned how to interpret and respond and manage our affective experience, or our, our feelings and affects through the experience of being in a family initially and then throughout life. Yeah. Is that is so that's in some ways that, that that's operating at that emotion level. Does that make yeah. sense? Have I kind of made the connections correctly? Yeah, I think so. Like the the way that we navigate all this and the experiences we have, um, the way that we build up or place meaning, I guess, meaning around mm. our experiences. A lot of this starts to happen automatically. Uh, yes, and so yes. the more we can come to understand how our bodies work, how our feelings work and how emotions and how it all fits together in terms of conflict and couples counselling and all of that sort of work, mm -hmm. this is all about getting below the surface as to what's really going on, uh, mm -hmm. which is always the, the big challenge. Yeah. And I know, I mean, Byron and I have had many conversations and jokes about where we've been trying to be intentional about having a conversation about those deeper sort of things. And he'll kind of joke about, well, I'm not even aware of having a feeling until you ask me, what, do I, what am I feeling? Like he's obviously, he said, I'm obviously having one, but I'm just not aware of it. So in some ways, the affect stuff is happening all the time every, every day, but it's only when we become aware of it that I guess that feeling dimension becomes, not that it's created at that point, but that is the process of becoming aware is the feeling. Yeah. And then so, in some ways the practice and habits around how do we describe it or how do we respond to it is the emotion. Yeah, yeah. And Feel free to correct that. No, no. Well, I think some of the other affects are a little bit obscure to sort of break open, but the, the one that's not is the, well, it's still an obscure emotion, emotion and everything, but it's, it's the one in the middle, a very powerful shame, humiliation affect. And... I think it's the one to kind of spend a lot of time on because it's it's the one that's all about human connection and relationships. Right. So should we go um, there now then, or is there something? Why, why don't we open that that now? Because um, I mean, emotions, feelings, affects the whole system, if you like. Is there an overall word that we can use or a description for the whole system? Is it the affective system? Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Affective. So it's obviously so these are, really. Really influential, yeah. really influential in our relationships. And I've often heard even people say that in things as something like in, in public policy or advocacy, that people vote on how they feel. So if you're trying to make a rational case for influencing people in terms of their citizen vote, if you're not appealing to their emotional, their affect system, um, if you're trying to do it through rational argument, you're already behind the eight ball. But I don't, I don't know that's true. That's what I've heard. But I think it's very true that we're making decisions all the time around how we feel about it. We get into a car that we're thinking about buying. And it's like, well, it doesn't feel right. Um, intellectually or rationally, it might, you know, be more fuel efficient. It might be better value. It might be, you know, have, be, have better safety features. But if it doesn't feel right, it's going to be really hard to decide in favour of that. So um, we're doing that all the time. 
and um, and in relationships can be pretty critical. I mean, that might be how we feel will drive us towards proposing and or accepting a proposal mm. or at the tragic end, um, deciding we can no longer live with this person and, and breaking up. Um, so shame is obviously a really big player in all of that. Um, how do you give, can you, I guess, firstly, just give us a working definition and then make some distinctions because there are some nuances around shame and guilt and they're sort of not identical. Yeah. So can you, can you unpack that whole thing a little bit for us? Yeah. Yeah. So obviously I've named it as one of the nine affects, so we can mm. just, that's a really important thing that people don't often think of shame as an affect as actually part of our physiology. So that's mm. just something just to be aware of, but yeah, it's often hidden and often unacknowledged in our lives um, that, yeah, can certainly be a source of great emotional, psychological and spiritual pain. And so it's often beneath the surface of our consciousness. So it's sort of something that's there, but it's sort of always very powerful. Um, I, the work of probably can't these days talk about shame or a definition without referring to the work of Brene Brown and all of her research mm. into shame. Um, and so she's sort of done a good job in kind of unpacking a lot about shame and vulnerability. Those who have seen her, well, the world has seen her mm. TED talk that she gave, I think. Yes. <laughs> Not for about 40 million views. <laughs> Hundreds of millions of views. Yeah. Of, uh. So she, she defined it, I think, yeah, as it, shame is an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's just something we've experienced, done or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. So I think some important, yeah, there's a couple of really, it's intensely painful, an experience of feeling that we are flawed and unworthy of love and belonging and then unworthy of connection. So I think they're, they're really there's a social so, dimension to it, isn't there? Social. Social dimension, absolutely. And it's so shame and guilt, obviously, we can make that distinction. So guilt is more so focused on uh, having done something wrong um, and I need to fix it up. So a sense of, um, you know, I've done something or I failed to do something that's aligned with my values and it feels bad and I need to make amends. So it's more kind of related to an action, something that you've commissioned, done or not done. Whereas uh, shame is a lot more intense. You know, you, it is, you are a bad person. Um, and so socially shame is, is um, equals death in the sense of it's, I'm bad, I'm unworthy of connection and belonging. So from an evolutionary psychology perspective, you know, we are right into this space of we used to always be as human species just in groups of 20 to 60 people, like small groups. And mm, the idea not. of, mm. yeah, the idea of not being in the group, it was just death. It was, if you were ostracized, you were dead. And, mm. you know, the, so it's incredibly powerful in that regard. We certainly see that playing out in our contemporary age with people, uh, say teenagers or adolescents in social media, where they get isolated, shamed through their social media. And it can all be happening without the parents' awareness and yeah. it ends up in a tragic taking of life. Like it literally translates to death because they, yes. just can't, they can't tolerate the intensity of the, I guess, the shame that is initiated through that bullying kind of process. Yeah. And I think... Again, there's studies that, like, I think it was, well, without getting into too much dark magic spiritual stuff, but, you know, like the voodoo doll, you know, the right. where they put pins in the doll in these some cultures and, and then mm. the person dies. So you've got an effigy mm. represents mm -hmm. a person and then the witch doctor. I mean, what's sitting behind that is it's not so much whether, you know, maybe there's some demonic influence in there. I don't want to discount yeah. that, but... But also from a psychological perspective, there's it's actually saying you're no longer part of the group. And so the yes. person dies because they're they're no longer part of the group. They're actually and then that's social connection. So it's kind of, that's actually what's going on. The mm. is you are no longer welcome, you're no longer here. Mm -hmm. Um and so they just go away and die. <laughs> um Yeah. 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 And from a, I mean if you go into deep history, 
where the safety of numbers was actually critically important. If you wandered out in the woods or the plains by yourself, you got eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, right? Yes. <laughs> there was real yeah. safety in numbers. And they talked yeah. about the tend and befriend as one of those longer-term survival strategies of we nurture yeah. the relationships and it's because together we are collectively safe, whereas on our own we are very vulnerable um, yeah. to physical predators, but that's also embedded into our psychology as well. Yeah. And so this is where we're really getting in touch with just how powerful this emotion is, and it's an affect. So it's something that immediately happens. So when someone experiences the shame affect, they, their tendency is to become smaller in their body. They shoulders go down. The actual It actually affects your muscle, muscles in your back of your neck. Mm-hmm. Often there's a looking down and away. So it's a hiding mechanism and the bodily, there's a bodily hiding. So all of that happens before you're even aware of it. Um, and then obviously it flows through to the feeling of, oh, I'm aware that I'm, I've got to get out of here, that there's something terrible going on. And and then we might connect that to our history. Of, oh, I've been embarrassed before. I was humiliated once before, and and then mm. just got this incredibly. Mm. So it really brings you. Even yeah. as you're even as you're talking, I'm recalling shame experiences from my past and analysing. I guess in the light of what we've been talking about. Yeah, and so and I'm sure people listening in, it, it comes to mind pretty quickly, doesn't it? That mm-hmm. moment you had where you're in front of the classroom and you were embarrassed. And then you can be in your late 50s and still remember that moment from grade three. You know, yeah. this is how powerful it is. Yeah. It's incredibly powerful. brings us down with a bump. And its purpose is to be sufficiently negative to bring your attention to whatever might have caused you, your joy, your sense of belonging to be interrupted. So it's mm-hmm. a very, very powerful for a reason. It's there to help foster our sense of belonging and mastery. Uh, but by helping us to sort of focus on, well, what, what's in the way? What's going wrong at this moment? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, it's good to understand shame is not bad. Like it's actually there that it's to draw our attention. Um, it's a primary emotion. It's a bodily reaction. And it's a signal. It's a powerful signal that something has happened in our interpersonal relationships that we need to attend to. Mm, Something's mm. not going right. It's usually about our interpersonal relationships. So the embarrassment, it's like in front of the class, you know, am I going to be acceptable in front of my peers? But uh, why do we experience it as so um, elusive and so difficult to manage? You know, this is the... So often I think what's actually happening is that when we are referencing the experience of shame, we're actually describing the residue feelings that are that arise from avoiding or not acknowledging, bypassing, or masking the feelings of uh, the bodily display of the affective shame. That's actually what we're talking about. Because mm. what happens is we develop these sophisticated ways of avoiding this horrible feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. This is where things get in trouble. This is where there's marital discord. This is right. where we have conflict, deep mm-hmm. embedded conflict. So now Donald Nathanson was a psychologist in the 90s and he looked at this whole affective theory of affect, the notion of shame, and he sort of identified there's four ways that people generally react. So if you think about these four ways, which he called the four poles of the compass, yeah. the compass of shame, he called it, and these are the ways that we generally try and avoid shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's it would be withdrawal. So if you think about these four ways, you'll usually yep. recognize one that that's your go-to or two. <laughs> um, but we all have this. So withdrawal, mm-hmm. that's where we isolate ourselves, running and hiding. There could be attack self. This is where we put ourselves down. We might have self-harm, that sort of masochistic behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's avoidance. So this is denial, um, abusing drugs and alcohol, disassociation through thrill-seeking, things like right. that. Mm-hmm. And then there's attack others. So this is turning the tables, being the bully, blaming the victim, lashing out verbally or physically. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, you know, aggression, depression, isolation, addiction, 
are all the four social yeah. social consequences of uh, these patterns of avoiding shame. Mm. So, so much of our mental health problems we have can be traced back to this powerful underlying emotion where mm. for whatever reason we're, we're unable to sit in vulnerability and process it. Yes. Instead, we find workarounds, we find defences against mm -hmm. this emotion. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm thinking my mind's going straight away to the life of faith because so much of the work that we both do is rooted in that understanding of being the beloved child of God who mm. calls us into life. And um, I'm aware of that things that I have been so deeply ashamed of in terms of sins or things that I know are um, causing harm to other people, that the act of, say, taking it to confession and receiving the mercy of the Lord has been such a liberation that I'm able at times to even talk publicly about, you know, I did this. And whereas before I was so ashamed of it, I would never have mentioned it to anybody. So, I mean, I'm thinking of one case, but I didn't even mention it to Byron. I mean, he would have known that I did it, but I had never talked to him about it. Um, mm. But having confessed it and brought it to the Lord and exposed it in some ways to the light, its power to kind of cripple me and, and hold me in bondage has been at least lessened. Maybe it's not completely eliminated. I, do you want to speak into that sort of reality for listeners? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially you're talking about coming into a place where you've been able to transform that shame mm -hmm. and it's like a restorative shaming experience in a way. It's sort of like um, Pope Francis actually has a quote, if I can find it. Yeah. Actually, uh, as, you, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about, maybe I should just name it what it is so it makes more sense, but I had a, a, a persistent habit of, of gossiping, of talking about other people's faults. And I would know it in my mind, I shouldn't be doing this. This is not a Christian thing to do. This is not a nice thing to do. If this person knew that I had said this about them, that would be deeply hurt. But I was so ashamed about doing that that never, it never took me years to take it to confession. So it's, it's that cycle of shame, that reinforcing. But it was actually through that interior work and prayer that I came to recognise that the reason why I did it was because I felt inferior and unacceptable. So by, it was a shame response that was driving the thing, the behaviour, that if I pointed out everybody else's faults, and particularly if I was with somebody else, we could bond together in making the other person a problem, and that helped me feel more acceptable as a person. And so the whole cycle was yeah. so toxic and shame energised and driven. And yes. look at me now, here I am talking about it because I've yeah. been able to in some ways bring the light of Christ into that and some redemption and I'm totally at peace at being able to say, you know what, I'm a miserable sinner and I need the salvation of the Lord and and this is one area where I'm yeah. experiencing his love and his healing and his mercy and and uh, reform. Yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It, it, um, I call it, by the way, the fourth rider confession. It's where, you know, right. third rider is when you've got one... Yeah confessor and lots of penitents. This is where you got yeah. one penitent and you got a whole <laughs> audience. <laughs> You're not giving me absolution, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So on the compass, like the kind of on the compass of shame that we talked about, it's a shame we don't have any we job it up here because that's yeah. we'll, we'll what I do when I'm working with Phil. Hmm. Yeah. They're probably well do you, where, where does it come under from your perspective? Oh, attacking others. Attacking others. And so it's also a bit addictive. Form, there was a bit of an addictive element to it as well because Yeah. There would be, I would feel so ashamed of doing it, like after the conversation, mm. I'd feel so ashamed yeah. of doing it that sometimes the um, the way to feel better was to do it again because then I'd focus mm. on somebody else's faults instead of focusing, being absorbed by my own inadequacy. Yeah. So there was a bit of both, I think, the addictive element, but also the attacking the others. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great example of beyond feelings, isn't it? In the sense of mm. peeling back the layers of the onion, getting to kind of some of the more deeper underlying things that are going on, which is really, okay, if you sit, if you can sit in that, find a safe context. So this is what happens in restorative practice. Mm. You're providing a structure and using a series of questions that provides a level of safety for people to move through in vulnerability the shame. This is why Brené Brown ends up talking so much about vulnerability. 
Yes. The other way to say is that vulnerability slash authenticity is sort yes. of similar, saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. But um, if we can find a way to be safe enough, this is where therapy comes in. It's all about creating a safety where you can actually process and sit in that vulnerability for longer rather than defend against it. And you can realize these these defenses, which with it's gossip, gossip has become, it's a defense mechanism. It's an attack others defense mechanism against something deeper. Mm-hmm. So how transformative to sort of, and then you, you talked about going to confession, but Pope Francis said, uh, it's the healing presence. Uh, Pope Francis described this as something that holds attention, intention, the experience of a dignified shame and a shamed dignity where one seeks humble and lowly place, but he's also able to allow the Lord to raise him up for the good of the mission without complacency. There's a great, mm-hmm. this you know, setting up structures for being able to experience a dignified shame and a shamed dignity. <laughs> I think that's yeah, really quite yeah, profound. Yeah, an interesting way to phrase it. Yeah. Because yeah. one of the things I suppose that was such a liberation for me is um, and it, it was a process over years and years of um, largely through the gifts of the charismatic movement. Actually, is coming to accept that I can't save myself. I think so many of us, particularly with we've got perfectionistic sort of tendencies, are trying to be good to earn the right to be loved and accepted by God. Which and and there's an element of that is yes, we should try. I mean, it's not that we're not going to try at all, but this in, independence or this total dependence on my own resources to be good meant that anywhere that I was failing, I couldn't, I, I had to hide it. And the journey of accepting that actually salvation didn't come from me, salvation comes from the Lord and with his sacrifice for me. Mm. And so once I was able to make that transition from I don't, there's nothing I can do to earn the Lord's love. His love is given to me freely. His acceptance, his mercy is, is the free gift. I guess I've just moved into the, to a, there was a, like a switch that flipped where it became almost okay to just, that was, that became, the badge of pride became owning that I was a needy person that needed the Lord. Whereas before the badge of pride was, was, I'm so good and therefore the Lord must love me and be so proud of me because I'm doing all these good things, right? And I'm, I'm I don't have the, a lot of the overt, the big, the big brand sins, if you like, that we yeah. stigmatize so deeply in our culture and so on. But... Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's that sort of it's like a boundary experience. Then, so on the one hand, the shame was dri- dri- drives us to this defense mechanism. Yes. But the fact of the shame, the fact that shame is there, is a boundary experience in that it's connecting us to our true identity. Mm. What I heard you sort of saying there that you. Yeah. By sitting with the vulnerability, we're, we're, we're actually getting closer. Because the shame wouldn't be there if we... It's like a shadow that's cast forward. We're seeing it cast forward. But it's only been cast forward because there's light behind yeah. it. It's that true dignity. Yeah. So yeah. The, the actual experience of shame is actually a reminder of our true identity. Right. So it's a philosophical term. is a boundary experience. Sort of a, mm. sort of a okay. philosophical phenomenology talks about boundary experiences. Yeah. But... Yeah, it's it's so it's quite, and this is where I think it's that moment in Genesis where they experience Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the garden, and then called out, "Adam, where are you?" And, and it's in that moment they've taken things into their own hands that that we mm. we will manage this ourselves. That's like a that's the definition of a defense mechanism, if you like. Right. Like, I'm going to gossip and I'm going to gossip because that's going to protect me. It's going to help me. Right. It's going to make them look bad so I look better. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's taking matters into our own hands rather than sitting in the truth of of our creatureliness, of, yeah. of the reality of you know, and then God says, Adam, where are you? Which is, Adam, where are you in the scheme of things? Mm-hmm. Are you God or are you man? And so this is where you get into the trustful surrender, um, Yes, which is what yeah. you were articulating before, which is at the heart of all healthy relationships and mental health and everything is deep, abiding, trustful surrender. Mm. Um, mm, yeah. Really. Yeah. And I guess the other thing, I mean, I'm conscious of the time, so we'll wrap it up pretty quickly, but you may have one last sort of comment to make around um, that the complications with the marriage relationship is that it's intended to be this relationship of reciprocity and mutual um 
but we're we're often not tracking at the same time or the same along the same kind of issues and so we're trying to in, in one ways we Byron and I are really conscious that um, marriage itself that the, our relationship is the trigger that helps us bring some things to the fore that we can then bring to the Lord and and through interaction and relationship can heal and process and grow through but there's also like this expectation of the other almost being like the ever ready therapist that's able to perfectly assist us in that process and often they're not sometimes their stuff is not they're not ready to deal with it or you know their life circumstances at the time just so I don't know if you have any wisdom for our listeners around how do we handle it when we're feeling like hey this is there's some stuff here in this relationship but we can't quite get on the same page with it yeah, I think this is where finding ways to to develop a holding pattern of vulnerability with each other, like to be mm-hmm. able to sit in that vulnerability and not run away from it, but to know that we will get through it. Um, yes. And sometimes that that vulnerability is an experience of shame. It's it's, mm-hmm. but we want to run away from it. So this is where really good communication patterns happen. So yeah. take the compass of shame. So often, what is happening is both couples are in in the compass they're they're in their defense and then it's just a cycle isn't it they're bouncing right. off each other and it's just cycles oh. of the compass of shame and yeah i Happen- do that and that triggers byron's shame and so he does that that triggers my shame and round and round it goes yeah so i often talk about the four questions the couple of questions in from restorative practice are great for married couples okay just to use which is yep. you know avoid the question why did you do that why did you say that or you know but it's just both sit with taking turns answering questions at what happened? What were you thinking about at the time? What have you thought about since? What's been the hardest thing? And what do we need to do to make it better? So it's really simple. Really, really simple. But those questions mm-hmm. create a container, container that yeah. enables a different type of conversation to happen. Yeah. Um, that's really good. We'll put that in the show notes as well. That's a really good take home. And, and I, I like the idea of saying, because we immediately go to, why did you do that? Why did I do Why? Like what's going But that requires a really, I guess, switched on capacity to be able to go in and name and put those emotions and that whole affect system into language. And sometimes it's sort of just, it's not quite there at the awareness. Whereas if we can stick to really concrete what was I thinking? Yeah, what happened? What was I thinking? What have I thought about yeah. since? It's we can actually enter into that deeper awareness by starting with those very concrete questions. Yeah, and I and this is maybe to end on, but it's opening the door for fostering tenderness. So mm-hmm. because you're actually giving space and time to allow your attributions that you've made. So if you say, "Why did you do that?" You've made an attribution. You've made a judgment. The word mm-hmm. "why," you might not quite know, but deep in your system, you've you've your script. Your you've, you've judged automatic. it. You've judged it as a negative. Yeah, behavior. you've judged mm-hmm. it. You've judged it. So by asking, saying what happened, even that question alone, and I'd recommend this for parenting as well, like with mm-hmm. the kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. What happened? What happened? Not why did you do that? What happened? Right. Just opens so many other options in the dialogue Mm -hmm. so many other options but you're opening this capacity then for the fostering and the development of tenderness um and i'm using that in in the terms that saint john paul ii would use the word tenderness out of love and responsibility i'm conscious that sometimes if we can frame what we were thinking about it tells you what we were feeling or, or why we react in a particular way so um this happened you were late home from work and I was critical of you when you came in the door. Mm. Um, what was I thinking? I was thinking, you don't think about me. You're, you're in your own world and you're just being, this is what I was thinking, right? And this is what I've been thinking about since. I'm thinking that this happens over and over and I'm really frustrated. So it's if that makes it easier for Byron to say, well, actually, it wasn't that I wasn't thinking about you. It was that... Mm. There was an emergency at work. Somebody fell over and hit their head and we had to wait for paramedics to turn up, right? (laughs) Real story. Mm. Um, 
but it, it allows us to again. He can be set, he can be tender towards me for being a bit rough with him when he knows that I was thinking, you know, a really terrible consequence for our relationship. Yeah, I'm interpreting yeah. very in that way. Yeah, yeah. A, and then if you overlay all of that with our wounds, with our yes. attachment wounds. Uh, where we're actually trying to resolve the abuse and the wounding we had from our father who didn't treat us well. Yeah. We're actually, that's what we're dealing with. In terms yeah. This is where it gets really volatile. And so really having these structures just for having this dialogue where we can start to develop tenderness and understanding. So important. There's a, back to Brene Brown, she has this great little story she tells on the, the, the swimming story. Are you familiar with that? I don't know. No, go ahead. Oh, Tell it's us. A great, it's a great story, but uh, it's probably too long to go into it, but we can put it in. I can send you the link. But she's going for a swim in this lake where they, she always swims with her husband. And she's a bit older, so she's feeling a bit conscious of how she looks. She's in no, no longer a youthful body. And, and they're heading out to swim and they're going into the lake. It's getting deeper. And she's just trying to connect with him when this moment of connection in this beautiful spot, but he's just not responding to her. And then they start swimming back to the shore. And in her head, the story she's telling herself is X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. I'm no good. He doesn't like me how I look in a swimsuit anymore. It's all of this shame. Kind of. um, anyway, she manages, as she tells the story, she manages to enter into this vulnerability moment with, with him later. And what could have turned into a ruined weekend away mm -hmm. because of this one moment instead turns around because she's vulnerable and she goes into vulnerability. Turns out he was having a panic attack and that's why he wasn't responding oh, to her. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So mm -hmm. it's just a great story that highlights mm -hmm. this dynamic of needing to be vulnerable and allow the shame response you're having to draw your attention to what's actually going on at the deeper level. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite symbolic that they're in the water because it's sort of like below the surface and above the surface, yeah, which is often yes. what we're working towards in marriage as well. Yeah. Yeah, that is yeah. a good metaphor for it, isn't it? And um, and and we're very conscious that so many of our arguments or um, upsets in our marriage really were rooted in just misinterpretation, misreading the signs or the the body language. Or yeah, we all like to think that that we're we're experts body language readers, but um, yeah, there's there's yeah. often there's the same body language can have lots of different meanings. Yes, and. Yeah. Um, um, I can read this quote out if you want Yes, to. please do. Um, from, so John Ball to Love and Responsibility. So I think it's a good way to sum up. But um, tenderness is the ability to feel with and for the whole person, to feel even the most deeply hidden spiritual tremors, and always to have in mind the true good of that person. This is the sort of tenderness which a woman expects from a man, and she has a special right to in marriage in which she gives herself to a man and goes through such extremely important periods of her life, such as experiences of pregnancy and childbirth and all that goes with them. Moreover, her emotional life is generally richer than the man's, so need for tenderness is greater. A man also has a need for it, but to a different degree and in a different form. But in the woman and in the man, tenderness creates a feeling of not being alone, a feeling that her or his whole life is equally the content of another and very dear person's life. This conviction very greatly facilitates and reinforces their sense of unity. A bit philosophical as you can expect from yeah, St. John Paul too. But, but so interesting you went to the, the um, sexual differences between um, mm. men and women, which, um, mm. the, gosh, there's a, a lot of unpack. We could, um, we could spend a whole podcast just unpacking that quote. Yeah. But we won't. We should wrap it up um, for our listeners. Um, but we'll put all of those references and those notes, we'll post them into the links of the show notes and things like that. So listeners, if you want to find those, you'll be able to find those there. Um, just before we sign off, we'd like to share a blessing with our listeners. I'll, I'll kickstart if you like, and then you can follow up. I'd just like to share um, St. Therese of Lassure's story of a soul, particularly on the Hello app. There is an audio book, and I think it's read by one um, a religious sister, and she has a beautiful voice that sounds a little bit childlike. And, and one of the things I love about St. Therese is she was really influential in me. She talks about how she's just so little and so helpless. And Lord, there's no way I could climb to heaven, but you can just make me an elevator and whisk me up. 
And I've often contemplated that and I felt so encouraged that that was a bit of a, a mindset shift for me is to sort of lean more onto that kind of idea that, you know, the Lord's doing all the hard work. All I have to do is just be little and accept his love and his generosity. So, but this particular audio book is, is, is beautiful because it sounds like I imagine St. Teresa's voice would have been just this lovely mm-hmm. little, almost a little bit childlike, but, um, so it's on the Halloween. Okay. I will, I will get a, I'll get a link for, for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, mine that I'd share would be Father Walter Chizek and He Leadeth Me. Have you come across this book? No. You know his I've, story. I think I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Yeah. So He Leadeth Me and just a profound spiritual work. One of the, right up there, one of my top spiritual mm-hmm. reads, very accessible, but he was a Jesuit priest at the end of the Second World War. Just before it ended, and he had a deep conviction of his vocation to minister to people of Russia at the end of the Second World War. So he and another Jesuit priest went across. And of course, he promptly found himself being tortured by the KGB or whatever for three years in concentration in, in prison and then sent to Siberia for 18, 18 years. Brutal. And so everything was stripped back. And so it's a story of him losing everything and even the most profound sense of vocation, uh, lost, gone, just nothing. But then his discovery of God's provision to him in everything that was actually happening. So he sort of crosses this threshold where he realizes God is providing for him. And then his story, as it goes on, he ends up ministering to the people of Russia in circumstances he could never, ever have dreamed or imagined possible. Which is really the story of, of of our lives in the sense that we're all it's quite amazing when you read it you think how am i going to relate to this jesuit priest going to russia it's not mm. it does it relates to all of our suffering no matter how small it, a lot about catholic mindfulness in his mm. story about how it was all about discovering in the moment by moment god's provision for him it's just a wonderful read it's yeah. available it's not an audiobook but it's it is on podcast like chapter by chapter i can send the links yeah okay that'd be great i i i yeah. hear that and i'm so inspired and terrified at the same time you know it's like mm. oh is that what it takes to really trust the lord is if you trust so much that you let him take everything so that you can we can learn that we never needed that in the first place it's a a yeah. gosh mm. wow something to contemplate yeah, great mm. great blessing of Sean, thank you so very, very much. Listeners, again, check out the show notes. I'll have a, a bio there for Sean and also links of where you can find out more about his work and his um, particular ministry with Catholic Psych Institute and so on. And we'll provide uh, references and links to some of the things that we've talked about here. But in the meantime, we lift you up and all of your intentions for your loved ones. And we pray, Our Lady Undoer of Knots, pray for us. And St. John Paul II, or St. John Paul the Great, pray for us. Thank you and goodbye.